Welcome to Marx's Voice, bringing you ideas and analysis from Socialist Appeal, the Marxist voice of labour and youth. For regular updates, subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes or any major podcast provider. Or visit our website at www.socialist.net where you can donate and subscribe to our paper online and help support us in the struggle for socialism. As Marxists, we take the struggle against all forms of oppression and discrimination very seriously. This is why we also take the theoretical debates on how to fight this oppression very seriously. Queer theory, the particular strand of theory we will be discussing here, emerged mainly in the United States in the 1990s among academic circles, particularly from feminist and gay studies and in connection with gay activism around the AIDS crisis at that time. Uh, originally an insulting term for homosexuals, queer was taken up and given a positive twist by the gay movement. Queer theory took up this term and deals with the question of persons that are outside of the norm. For example, homosexuality, transgender or intersexuality. And queer theory argues that what we see as normal and natural is actually created by power structures in society. That it is an oppressive fiction that serves the ruling order. The main premises of queer theory are, therefore, that biological sexes, gender identity and sexuality are all cultural fiction. It says that we must reveal this fiction and show its contradictions and parody it and thus change the discourse. Uh, discourse usually means language in all written and spoken forms, ideology, but also performances, uh, meaning everyday actions of people that follow this ideology in, in this theory. So how, so how did queer theory arrive at, at its premises? In the 1960s and 70s, a women's struggle, as well as gay struggle, was more influenced and linked to class struggle. This reflected the general upswing of class struggle and revolution in the world. For example, the Stonewall riots in 1969, where the gay community in the USA rose up against uh, brutal discrimination, clearly had radical implications with many activists holding anti-capitalist views. But social democratic and Stalinist parties did not fight consistently with the women, and in the case of the LGBT community, ignored or even actively rejected them. In these parties, sexism and homophobia largely prevailed. So when the class struggle reclined over the following years after very serious defeats, this hardened the view of feminist activists that women's struggle must be led separately from class struggle. In, this, in practice, this, it was a shift, from, uh, a shift to institutionalized politics in the state apparatus with women's ministries, research centers on, on the one hand, and cultural circles focusing on individual experiences, language, and single-issue campaigns on the other hand. In feminism, the struggle against oppression shifted more and more from class struggle to a struggle between the sexes, i.e. against patriarchy. So oppression is explained here as a question of men versus women in, instead of exploited class versus ruling class. Mar Marxists, on the other hand, explain that class society was the historical reason for the emergence of women's oppression. And it's also uh, the root for the oppression of diverging sexualities. For the most part of our existence, humans did not live in class societies. The existence of a class of class societies requires a surplus product, something one class can enrich itself at the expense of another. In early societies where people had not yet the technical means to produ to produce more than they needed for immediate survival, 
There was no systematic oppression either, but technological development led to agriculture, which was the basis for a surplus product and thus class society. Among many fundamental, many fundamental changes, it also meant that communities could raise more children. This in turn led to a more clear-cut division of labor between the sexes, although this in itself was not a class division, nor was it oppressive. But it fell together with the fact that the male-dominated dominated areas of work were also those where a surplus was produced. So while women as those who ensure the survival of the species were held in high, in, high esteem before, over a, over a period of time, their economic role led to subordination. This shows that women's oppression is not accidental. Uh, the biological role of women as those who give birth does play a role. But it also shows that oppression is not naturally ingrained in the sexes. With increased wealth, there came also the wish of men to inherit this wealth to their own children. And this led to a control of female sexuality. Only through monogamy could men know who their own children were. Uh, it is thus the specific forms of family, monogamous family in class society, that led to oppression of sexuality, including diverging sexualities such as homosexuality. Capitalism inherited the, the oppression of women and the monogamous family from previous societies and adapted it to its own needs. Sexism and the institution of the family are very useful to the capitalists. Within the family, important repro reproduct reproductive work such as childcare and care of the elderly is done. Uh, and sexism and homophobia are further also used to diffuse workers' solidarity against their common enemy, the capitalist. This means that the capitalists have a great interest in upholding sexism and the oppression of women and sexual minorities. We can argue that as long as class society and with it the monogamous fam family exist, it will be impossible to fully overcome social discrimination based on sexual orientation or women's oppression. But feminist theory, and as we will see also queer theory, rejects the class contradictions as the central explanation for oppression. Instead, feminism looks for the reason of oppression in the relation between the sexes, i.e. in patriarchy. It follows that something in being male must be oppressive, while something in being female must lead to women's liberation. This means that the identity of a person became the key to struggle. But at the same time, most feminists rejected the biological explanation of, of oppression, rightfully, because after all, also the reactionaries defend sexism commonly with biological arguments that women are naturally inferior. In order to find a reason for oppression within the relationship, re relationship of the sexes uh, itself, but without having a class analysis, a crude dualism between biological sex and social gender was introduced. 15 minutes on the other. This, was, uh, this way they can assign different phenomena mechanically either to nature or to society, culture and psychology. This is what most famously Simone de Beauvoir uh, does in her book The Second Sex, for example. We do not disagree with the feminists in criticizing gender roles and how society puts pressure on people to fulfill them. However, feminist theory cannot explain the connection between sex and gender roles, which can only be understood by a complete analysis of class society. Feminist theory with doubling of sex and gender opens up a contradiction in its own analysis between matter and idea. Philosophically, feminist views often switch between a mechanical materialism and idealism, an unsolvable dualism, which in the last instance always turns out to be idealism. If it is not nature that is oppressive, it must be the culture or the male psychology or language and so on. The resulting practice is to fight sexism with ideas, individual improvement and language reforms instead of class struggle. 
Not only is this an impasse for struggle, it's also riddled with contradictions. So in the midst of all these debates uh, within feminism, queer theory emerged. Queer theory takes the feminist arguments to the extreme, but in a way to a logical, idealist conclusion. In 1990, Judith Butler published her book Gender Trouble, which is the most famous book ascribed to queer theory. Uh, she says that not only are social gender roles culturally created by the patriarchal system, but that biological sex is also culturally created. So she solved the feminist dualism of sex and gender by stating that both are only a product of society and discourse. So according to her, the ruling discourse, discourse in society is not only oppressive by saying, for example, women are weak, but uh, by defining women as women. The philosophical basis for this is the postmodern trend in philosophy, which rose to popularity in the 1970s in the universities. According to this idealist philosophy, the whole of reality is actually constructed by language. 20 minutes gone, Yola. Please leave a little bit more time for the translators as well. Sorry. For example, post-structuralist feminist Chris Whedon writes the following. Language, far from reflecting a given societal reality, constitutes social reality. There is no meaning beyond language. This is what she writes. Um, and queer theory argues that language is power. Every category is a generalization, and thus every generalization and every category or term is seen as a violent act of excluding those who don't fit in this category. Since science generalizes the patterns of nature, queer theory argues that science is also only a powerful discourse. Biology, including sexes, are thus seen as a cultural fiction. For many, this theory seems appealing because it does contain a grain of truth. It is true that in class society, science is not free from the ideology of the ruling class. There is a long list of examples how scientists try to prove that women are inferior, that they have smaller brains, or that homosexuals are dangerous and sick, and so on. But from this, it cannot be concluded, as queer theory does, that science can create reality free from the actual facts. We must correctly understand the relationship between matter and idea. As Marxists, we are materialists. Ultimately, everything, including our ideas and our consciousness, are material processes. Or, as Karl Marx wrote in the German ideology, the phantoms formed in the human brain are also necessarily sublimates of their material life process, which is empirically verifiable and bound to material premises. So this means that ideas can be wrong. They can be inaccurate or blurry reflections of reality that don't depict an accurate image. Ideas can also produce fantasies, formulate scientific theses yet to be tested out. In short, ideas can also be creative. But because ideas are a small part of material re reality, they can't raise themselves above the circumstances that created them. For example, just because humans want to believe that they can fly doesn't make them defy gravity. However, with the help of ideas, we can influence, manipulate and change reality within certain limits. So although we cannot make humans fly by pure will, we can, with ideas, build an airplane which then makes a human fly. Similarly, if we scientifically understand how sexes function, we can invent such things as hormone therapy that can manipulate secondary sex characteristics such as beards, breasts and so on. So only if our ideas correspond correctly with reality can they change it. In order to grasp reality, generalizations are necessary. And in order to do so, we must abstract from the many individual cases, for example, all the women in the world, and look at what their essence is, what makes them comparable. However, the mechanical view that dominates the natural sciences 
raises the general categories to a principle and demands that all of the complex reality complies with it. If you don't comply with the general average, something must be wrong with you. Queer theory takes this one-sided attitude as, our, as a foundation for its criticism. In order to criticize the universal categories, which are seen as the cause for oppression, they look towards the individual as focus and starting point for everything. They take the contradictory and necessarily complex individual to prove that all categories are in a way incomplete to describe individuals, which is true. And But further, that they want to prove that all categories are therefore fictitious and wrong, which is not true. In fact, what queer theory says is that, this, that there is no objective truth. 30 minutes gone, one hour left. Every truth is only a fiction created by discourse, according to queer theory. But to say that there is no reality and no objective truth that we can know me, means that there are no criteria whatsoever to say whether something is true or false. Sexism is, in today's society, without doubt, a powerful, powerful ideology or discourse, as queer theory would call it. But anti-sexism is also a discourse in society and one that is increasingly popular. Therefore, according to queer theory, both must be equally true. This shows how reactionary the conclusions of such a philosophical stance can be. By saying that there is no objective truth, you can only argue with morality or your personal feelings in favor or against something. And this is exactly what queer theory does. It takes the subjective identity and feelings as the basis to create truths. Of course, some truths are then seen as more true than others. For example, to say that there are, there are biological sexes uh, um, is seen as bad. But this can only be argued with individual point of views, not with objective criteria. By taking the individual as the starting point of understanding the whole world, biological sex, society's gender roles, and an individual's experience are all explained from the point of view from, of, of this individual, instead of from nature and society. They're all mashed together in one category, the individual gender identity. Their differentiation, origin, and their objective causes are thus blurred. But a person's identity, the human brain and consciousness, is a very complex thing. Genes and biology play a big role, but also education and individual experiences. All of these things can be explained materially. But our individual identity is a product of material circumstances and not the other way around. Our individual consciousness that does not create reality and thus can only within very narrow limits explain it. Just because a person doesn't, for example, feel like a man or woman doesn't mean that they don't have a distinct biological sex. Of course, Marxists recognize that reality is complex and categories do not fit all individual cases, also in case of sex and gender. There are cases that are not clear cut. There are cases of persons with different chromosomal combinations, such as XXX and XXY, for example. There are also persons who have either male or female reproductive organs, but they wish or need to live as the opposite gender and so on. It would be crazy to deny that these forms exist as part of the right wing do and as the gender roles in most societies also demand. It would likewise be crazy to claim that these people are worth less than those who can easily be categorized. And of course, we fully def defend the democratic rights of all people to lead their lives as the ident identity they choose. These intermediate forms certainly exist, but they do not constitute a third, fourth or fifth biological sex. Their existence does not change the fact that there are men and women, the two sexes which form the basis for sexual reproduction and that the large majority of the population can be categorized as either male or female. But most importantly, this fact in itself 
does not lead to the oppression and discrimination against intersex or trans people, for example. The existence of sexes, sexes or even of gender roles does not explain where oppression of sexual minorities and women comes from. But the argument of queer theory goes, language creates categories and these categories are oppressive. Therefore, we must fight the categories. How? By showing their incompleteness, paradising them, uh, paradising them uh, by undermining them and by creating new categories. This also explains why there are lists by queer theory advocates with more than 60 different genders. This includes genders such as demiboy, which describes a person who partially but not fully identifies as a man. Here, sex, gender roles, sexual orientation and preference are all mixed together in a big hodgepodge. 40 minutes gone. But these names don't help at all to understand where oppression comes from or even where sexes actually come from or what they are. If biological sexes are fictitious, why was exactly this line of division between men and women created and became so prominent? Why not, for example, the size of your ears or the color of your hair? If sex is only a cultural construct, how can you explain sexual reproduction? To say that sexes are not real also has logical consequences for political demands. If you deny the existence of biological sex, on what basis do you argue for gynecology, sex-specific contraceptives or hormone therapy? And how can you, for example, demand maternal leave for mothers? Of course, queer theory advocates usually are in favor of these demands, but their theory does not, in fact, support this argument. This shows the reactionary implications of a theory that rejects reality. But there are also um, serious negative consequences that concern more concretely the methods of struggle. In order to not repeat what queer theoreticians think as uh, the root of oppression, they say that they do not want to force anyone in a category and force to be represented or dominated by a person with another identity. The argument goes, since I can only speak for myself or at best for my specific identity category, any unity in struggle is exclusive and oppressive. Unity is only purchased through violent excision, writes Judith Butler in her text, Merrily Cultural. Another queer feminist, Franziska Haug, uh, complains, she complains about it, the right to speak and fight is being decided depending on the identity of the speaker. Queer theory thus ends up doing exactly what they originally criticized. Identity politics, where defining and representing the category of your identity becomes the most important thing. It thus plays a direction, directly reactionary role by dividing the common struggle of all oppressed and diverting it into representational politics. At demonstrations and rallies against sexism, this can be seen when the list of speakers is carefully crafted according to different identity criteria. But whether a political perspective and the correct slogans are present is secondary or even irrelevant. This kind of representational politics can also very easily be used by the ruling class by having a quota of fear, queer or female representatives in, a par in parliament or by appointing a queer CEO, they can paint themselves as progressives while at the same time brutally exploiting workers of all identity. The problem with representational politics is that it doesn't seek the basis and roots of oppression in class society, but in identity. Since queer theory argues uh, that it's so-called identities that oppress us, identities must, must also be used to fight oppression. However, being queer in itself is not progressive, nor is it reactionary. Identity is not the tool with which we can change the system. Being queer cannot dissolve the bourgeois family, nor can non-heterosexual relationships undermine capitalism. On the contrary, sections of the bourgeoisie in a number of countries are willing to give concessions to LGBT rights, such as gay marriage. 
uh, when it helps their image or when they want to get votes with this. As of today, about 30 countries or territories have legalized same-sex marriage, mostly in Europe and the Americas. But the economic reality of capitalism means that also queer couples have to subordinate to the bourgeois role of the family. For example, they will have to find the time to do housework and care for children. To do so, they must then rely on part-time jobs or one partner working less, i.e. being more economically dependent, dependent on, on the other partner. So the freedom of, for example, gay marriage is only the freedom to be as oppressed as the rest of the working class in this regard. At the same time, the bourgeoisie will also use homophobic and anti-trans anti ideology to cater to their conservative clientele. 50 minutes the, gone, 40 left. They will use it to divide the workers and to strengthen the bourgeois family when necessary. So even though gay rights increased over the last decades, decades and, and there's a generally more positive image of queer people in, in some countries, reactionary, reactionary ideologies always kept alive as a backup. In 2019, Forbes magazine wrote an, in an, wrote in an article, uh, nine of the biggest, most LGBTQ supportive corporations in America gave about $1 million or more each to anti-gay politicians in the last election cycle. These companies include, for example, UPS, uh, General Electric, Home Depot. This clearly shows that the capitalists will not fight for LGBT equality. They simply do whatever is most profitable to them. Corporations will superficially produce rainbow-colored merchandise to attract LGBT consumers or consumers who deem LGBT rights important. But they will always be just as willing to support capitalist politicians that maximize their chances for profit, even if they're um, anti-LGBT. To believe that true equality can be achieved within capitalism is false. This illusion actually helps the ruling class, which then can take up some, in their eyes, harmless reforms without having to do away with true oppression. Of course, we support all positive reforms and legal rights. Actually, a struggle for equal rights for everybody is even necessary to unite the working class in the first place. But to limit the struggle to these reforms will not solve our problems fundamentally. At the same time, exactly because there is real inequality in society, ideologies that use scapegoats and blame the inequality on a section of the working class can gain some support with more backwards layers of the masses. We must therefore argue at all times against sexist prejudices and discrimination. Only this way can we achieve the necessary unity among the working class to get rid of the roots of oppression. 55 minutes gone. Please leave a bit of a longer break for translators. Thanks. For this, however, queer theory does not give us the necessary means, because it can't even explain the roots of oppression. As I said, queer theory claims that power structures and power discourses create oppression in society. In queer theory, power is a complex and obscure network omnipresent in society. The concept of power that queer theory advocates, advocates is borrowed from the French philosopher Michel Foucault. Foucault writes in his book History of Sexuality the following. Power is everywhere, not because it embraces everything, but, it beca but because it comes from everywhere. Power is not an institution and not a structure. Neither is it a certain strength we are endowed with. It is the name that one attributes to a complex strategical situation in a particular society. What is it supposed to mean that power is a complex strategical situation? This explanation is no explanation at all. It basically says that every single person produces and reproduces power 
by using words and by acting according to society's expectations. Not only does this not explain why some people are more powerful than others or why certain forms of oppression exist, it is also very useful to blame every single individual for their being power in society. For example, they can then say, we're all at fault for oppressing women by acting as if they're women. This way, the true reason for oppression is obscured and instead every person is in a way an oppressor. For instance, it is often said that non-queer workers are supposedly profiting from the oppression of queers. While it is true that men have higher wages than women and do not suffer from the very serious discrimination that queer people suffer in their everyday life. It is wrong to say that this discrimination is in their interest. 60 minutes gone, half an hour. Because if one sector of the working class is oppressed, this automatically weakens the common united struggle for better, for better conditions. If one sector of the working class receives poor wages and bad treatment, This opens the door for capitalists to lower working standards for all workers. Instead of fighting against those who are actually in power and who exploit and oppress us, this leads us instead to argue about whose identity is more oppressive. Queer theory is therefore an idealist set of ideas that rejects the class analysis as fundamental explanation for oppression, but doesn't offer an explanation on its own. It is not only useless for our emancipation, but actively harmful. By dividing the united movement of the working class and because it can easily be taken up by the ruling class to make them seem progressive while continuing oppression and exploitation. It can also be taken up by reformists to give them a radical touch without leading true struggles uh, for, for reforms and freedom. As Marxists, we therefore reject queer theory, but we do not at all reject the struggle against the oppression of women and people who identify as queer. On the contrary, we see this struggle as an absolute necessity for our cause in order to unite the working class. We cannot tolerate discriminatory behavior amongst uh, our working colleagues and comrades. We must patiently explain why this helps to exploit all of us and why it is in our own interest to fight against all forms of, of oppression. In an actual united struggle, the working class and youth can experience on their own what unites them. This was, uh, for example, vividly shown in the recent Black Lives Matter protests. It would have been fatal to explain in these protests that all white people should go home, that because of their identity, they will never be able to truly fight racism. This would have had the effect of estranging many people who stood in solidarity and actively uh, participated in the movement. While queer theory argues that unity is always oppressive, we, on the other hand, must focus particularly on what unites us in struggle. Because exactly in a common struggle, people learn also to overcome their prejudices that they may have. By standing shoulder to shoulder, discriminatory attitudes will be fought far more efficiently by, than by educational projects or language reforms or by campaigns filtered by the capitalists. If we consciously use our strength in, by uniting in struggle, we can expropriate the capitalists, take their means of power into our own hands. Because as Marxists, we have a materialist concept of power. If you own the factories and the media, you can exploit workers and print ideologies that help your position. This is power. That's why power is not a complex network of discourses where everyone is a culprit, but it is the power of a ruling class profiting from the oppression of the exploited class. Our optimism is drawn from the fact that we are the class that creates all the wealth in society and that we are actually the majority. We can take power by taking control over the means of production, such as factories, banks, land, and so on. 
and this will eradicate the material basis of oppression, including the bourgeois family, and this can open the way for the true emancipation of all human beings. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Marx's Voice. You can subscribe to our podcast through SoundCloud, iTunes, or any major podcast provider, or visit our website at www.socialist.net. And if you're able to, please donate or subscribe online and help support us in the struggle for socialism.